0: You are live tonight with School Psych Podcast. Welcome everybody for joining us. Um, I'm Rachel. I'm a school psychologist working in Maryland right now. We've got an awesome guest tonight who's going to talk to us a little bit about um, his recent his work and then his recent article in the Communique um, effective cognitive processing assessments and intervention on Academic Outcomes. Can 200 Studies Be Wrong? This is kind of an article that's been trending around. We've seen it a couple different places showing up on Facebook. Um, I know it's been passed around in my district, so we're really excited. But um, Rebecca's going to tell us a little bit about how to participate tonight.
1: Rebecca. Hi, everyone. Thank you. Um, I'm Rebecca. I'm a school psychologist in the state of Connecticut. Um, I'd love to hear from you all. We'd, we'd all like to hear your questions, thoughts, comments, ideas. You can post them on Facebook um, on the School Psyched podcast page or on School Psyched, your school psychologist page. Just you can post them right under the top post in comments, or you can message me um, with the message button, or on Twitter using the hashtag SitePodcast. And here's Anna.
2: Hi, guys. I'm
1: Anna coming to you from New York. I'm so
2: sorry. My dog is <laughs> acting crazy in the background. <laughs> um, so we had a poll on our Facebook page um, about what you guys um, did with assessments and interventions and what their role was. And we got a lot of great participation in that. Um, It sounds like um, most psychologists in our poll are interested in hearing from Dr. Burns about specific um, skill versus cognitive processing deficits. We got some comments on, you know, should we intervene at skill levels? Some people think that both are valuable. So we got a lot of little feedback about um, skills versus processing interventions. Um, The majority of people use um, curriculum-based measurements in RTI to develop interventions for specific weaknesses. Um, Some people also use achievement testing. We had seven people who use achievement testing to develop skill-specific weaknesses. And we had a handful of people, about five votes, who um, select interventions based on weaknesses on the cognitive assessment, such as working memory weakness, things like that. Um, And so There was a lot of discussion in the article um, that Dr. Burns published and um, relating to the use of assessments and what we should do and how we should intervene with students and what's most effective and helpful. So I'm going to introduce Dr. Matt Burns. Um, Matt Burns is the Associate Dean for Research and Professor of School Psychology at the University of Missouri. He's the former editor of School Psychology Review and Assessment for Effective Intervention and has published extensively using data identify appropriate reading and math interventions for struggling students. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Burns. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure,
3: thanks. Thanks for having me again. This is, this is wonderful. As I said to you guys before we started, I, I love that you guys do this. I think it's great. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be to be a part of it. I'm the Associate Dean for Research here at the University of Missouri. Uh, I was a, a, a professor of school psychology and was at the University of Minnesota as a school psych uh, professor for 10 years. Central Michigan University before then and and a practitioner before then. So, my research deals with academic interventions, mostly with um, uh, severe reading problems, severe math problems, kids who have severe deficits, learning disabilities, etc. And I recently started doing work in more systems approaches because I realized we can't be doing one on one intensive interventions with 30, 40, 50, 60% of the population. So, I've started doing some more systemic interventions as well. But my first love has always been and always will be. The kids with severe, the most severe problems, the most severe reading and math difficulties. Um, so I still do quite a bit of work with schools, but as I said, now I'm in faculty at the University of Missouri.
0: Awesome. Um, so I'm wondering, um, to start us off in our discussion, if you could just tell us a little bit about your most your recent article that, um, that everyone's kind of talking about um, in our social media realm. Um,
3: Great. Yeah, I'll give, so I'll give you a little, a little bit of background on that. So, I, as I said, I do research in academic interventions. And as a practitioner, I was I was pretty um, theoretically agnostic. I mean, as I've said many times, data are my muse. I, I follow them. So, mm-hmm. boy, I'll, as a practitioner and working with kids now, I'll do whatever it takes to, to help them. So I've tried just about everything. And, um, and when I started doing more research in it, um, started reading more in-depth into some of the things that we do and some of the reasons that we do them, and really started to question some of the practices that we see in school psychology. Uh, and the, it was concerning for me because for, for, for decades, school psychology has been the scientists, practitioners in the schools, and when we had these fads that come and go, uh, the Erlen filters, the uh, megavitamins, whatever, school psychologists have always been the ones that say, you know, no, that, that doesn't work. Uh, and so that got me thinking about some of the stuff we do in, in name of academic intervention. Now most of the research I do deals with trying to collect data to see what interventions the kids need. The, honestly, the, there is no shortage of interventions. We know what interventions to use, we know which ones work. I know you've had Jim right on before, InterventionCentral.com is a great website, lots of good interventions. Um, Evidence-based intervention network, EBI network. If you just Google Evidence-Based Intervention Network, it's housed here at the University of Missouri, you'll find that. Lots of really great interventions on that. Um, uh, Amanda Vanderheiden has a great website, GoSBR, stands for scientifically based research, just because she's that much of a dork. So go SBR.net, great website, lots of interventions. The, what we haven't done a good job of is knowing what interventions to use for what which interventions work for which kid. And for 50 years we've been doing work in the aptitude by treatment interaction framework, where we assess underlying cognitive abilities and use those to decide what interventions kids should get. And after 30 years, an entire career, Kronbach was the person who sort of coined that term, uh, ATI, aptitude by treatment interaction. after 30 years of research in 1977, he said, you know, these ATIs might exist, but we, we haven't found them. Now, we, he thought that, or at least he didn't, maybe Swanson in 87 said this, but he thought they exist, we haven't found them yet, and the reason we haven't found them yet is we didn't have good measures. So we did a meta-analysis. Stephen Pfeiffer uh, writes, a, writes a lot about uh, using cognitive processing data to identify kids, uh, interventions for specific kids. And he had an article I think it was in 2009 in, in psychology in the schools and he listed several cognitive processes and measures thereof to do assessments for kids in tier 3 to see what they need. So we thought that's cool. Let's do a meta-analysis to see how well that works. So we did. So this is coming out in school psychology quarterly. It's not out yet. And we found uh, 37 maybe it was 35, 35 I think, studies that dealt with using measures of cognitive processing to determine reading and math interventions. Now we, we put a whole list of those in the article, things like um, the, the Jack Nag cognitive assessment measure, uh, Woodcock Johnson, you know with, with um, the cognitive measure, uh, cross battery assessment, etc. And we found 35 studies that looked at it, but only eight of them really used the data to determine an intervention. And of those eight, the median effect size was 0.17. Now, going back to grad school, I know many of you don't need this refresher, but I'll say so anyway. You know, the effect size of 0.8, 0.5, 0.2, those are generally considered guidelines. We shouldn't overuse them, but for conversation, it's okay. So an effect size of 0.8, standard deviation of 0.8, means the kids that got the intervention did 0.8 standard deviations better than the kids that didn't. So 0.8 is generally considered a good large effects, 0.5 is moderate and 0.2 is is small or weak. Well the average effect size for using cognitive measures to determine academic interventions was 0.17. Now that's um, obviously a small effect. So that got me thinking, well let's look and see what other meta-analyses say, and that was the the point of the article. Um, So we looked at, we found seven meta-analyses, I'm trying to make sure, seven meta-analyses, one of which was the one I just mentioned, that used Measures of cognitive uh, functioning to determine intervention, or interventions based on cognitive data, to uh, for interventions for reading and math, and we found average effect sizes of you know 0.17 to 0.58. So, but most of them were in the small to maybe moderate range. A couple were you know around moderate or or maybe a little higher. The result of which is there were 203 total studies. An average effect size of all that of 0.27, which of course is a small effect. Um, working memory was the was the worst. Working memory interventions that based on working memory or assessments of working memory to drive intervention. There's a really great two great meta analyses looking at that. One by Melby, Lervog and Hume in 2013, um, and another by I don't know how to say the name, but uh, it's S H W A I. G-H-O-F-E-R, Schwager, no idea. Uh, and basically what they found with these effect sizes of 0.10 or smaller, and their conclusion was there's no evidence that working memory transfers, working memory training, working memory interventions, there's no evidence any of that transfers to reading and math whatsoever. And the thing I was troubling about it is at the same time I'm writing this and working on this, I'm at the NASP convention last year, and in the program there were five paid workshops or reading skills or something, on using working memory interventions for reading and math. And I was presenting the first meta-analysis I just mentioned at a state conference once. The first one, looking at the the one that's coming on school site quarterly, that we concluded working memory especially, especially had little effect. And in the room right next to me, literally at the same time, was someone presenting on cognitive interventions for kids with reading and math problems. So basically the point of all this then was you know what, I'm not saying do or don't do anything here, I'm saying a couple things. The data don't support using cognitive interventions to, for um, reading and math. The data do not support measuring these two those two th- measuring cognitive functions uh, to determine reading and math interventions. The data do support measuring reading and math to determine reading and math interventions. So we suggest don't think aptitude by treatment interac- interaction, think skill by treatment interaction. And skill by treatment interaction, so measures of phonological and phonemic awareness, 0.50. Uh, measures of reading fluency, 0.43. You now, these direct measures of the skill, we have a meta analysis in um, Schoolside like Quarterly looking at it for math, measures of the skill and using those to drive intervention led to large effect sizes, 0.8, 1. something. So don't think ATI, think skill by treatment interaction. And then the other point, really, that we wanted to make was let's be reflective. As professional practitioners, we need to reflect on our practice, think about what we do. Cavalli and Fornis, who are the masters of of meta-analytic research around special ed uh, practices, coined things, they they did their first work on, I don't know if it was first, but some early work on learning styles. You know, if the kid's visual, teach them through visual mode, auditory through the auditory mode, and the effect size was was negligible, very small effect. And they, after after looking at dozens of studies, said that anyone who still uses these, uh, this idea of learning styles in their practice are examples of, of clinical beliefs overshadowing research data. Like that we have to be careful of. And I, I was presenting this one time, similar kind of idea, the same meta-analysis such, and someone at the end raised their hand and says, "Oh, I know all the data say that, but I still just believe that we need to do this. I said, well, I didn't say that. I didn't respond, but um, I'm thinking in my head. That's exactly my point. We have to be reflective researchers, and reflective practitioners, who look back on the research, the data, our own practice, and make sure what we're doing is really best for kids. And if we just do that, and just keep keep that in mind, and be skeptical of the things that we do, as a healthy skeptical, you know, healthily skeptical of of our own practice, then then things will be better better for kids. So um 200 studies basically said aptitude-by-treatment interaction framework didn't work, but if you looked at a skill-by-treatment interaction, we have much much more likelihood for success.
2: Ah, super
0: interesting, and I know that um, a lot of people who, um, I, I mean, I've worked in Texas for a year, and I know that they kind of live and breathe um, profile of strengths, and weaknesses, and um, some of those, you know, um, models that you referenced and so it's just kinda one of those moments that if you're living and breathing and doing that as part of your practice every day because that's what your district does and you hear something like that it's kinda like ah (laughs) we talked with Dr. McGill and talked about you know when he was um, speaking to the validity of some of our cognitive measures and questioning that, and having that skepticism for what's going on with that, um, it kind of yeah makes your head explode and <laughs> questions everything. So it's
3: yeah, there's there's that that I would argue that's a separate but related issue. Um, mm-hmm. Using those cognitive measures for uh, to derive academic interventions, I would suggest is not effective. Now. There's a debate over do, should we be using those to identify kids with learning disabilities. That's a separate issue for me. It, it's We might use them to identify LDL, I'll make a point about that in a second. We might be using them to identify LD, but that's not going to tra- directly translate into intervention or instructional programming for kids. I have some concerns about using those to identify LD, which is not my area, so I won't comment on that. All I'll do is point you to the work of, the, of your uh, previous person, what was his name, McGill? Go. No. That podcast was outstanding. If, if you're watching this now and didn't see that one, I encourage you to watch it. Um, but also Jeremy Misiak out of Texas, out of Houston, has done some really great work. And I might be saying his name wrong, but it's M-I-C-I-A-K. I'm pretty sure that's right. Uh, Jack Fletcher, of course, has done some really great work on this. Uh, a former a student of mine, Katie Mackey, just finished her dissertation, which is a submitted for p- publication right now. We surveyed practitioners, giving them different models, giving them different you know approaches, and, and giving them data. And we saw really low correspondence between h- how practitioners interpret the data and how experts interpret the data for patterns of strengths and weaknesses, like about 60% correspondence. That number might be slightly off. Um, so I, that's, but to me, that's a separate issue. I would argue anyone, any a school psychologist needs to be well trained and well versed in, in administering and interpreting a cognitive measure, as anyone who's, who's a psychologist must be able to do that. So at school psychs, we need to be trained in administering cognitive measures and know the appropriate uses and limitations of them. So I would never argue for taking cognitive measures completely out of school psychology, but I would argue for using them in a more appropriate way and to answer specific research or uh, specific questions, problem solving questions. Uh, And I I would argue that one of those questions isn't what reading intervention should we do. I'm going to ask you guys a question. I see your comments here. I should have asked before we started. Um, do you want me to comment on them, or, or are you going to ask them? Sure.
1: If, 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 yeah, if it flows in our conversation, I, I'm kind of doing a stream of consciousness thing and the side notes.
3: <laughs> I'll, I'll let you jump in then.
1: Yeah. No, I just think, like Rachel said, it's it, it thinking about um, what you're saying, really you need to shift um, perspective. On, uh, on just our daily functions. I, I think it's a really um, huge thing for us to, to digest and, and think about um, because in grad school for me and I'm early career I've, I've only been out of grad school for three years but we were told you know over and over again that these assessments are, are to inform your interventions and so I think not only does it need to, we need to think about how we apply um, this to our daily work, but also our in our graduate programs. What, you know, maybe we need to kind of restructure all the way back to what we're teaching kids in school. So yeah. that affects how you teach your students about assessment itself.
3: Yes, absolutely. So uh, we have to teach assessment from a problem-solving framework. Mm-hmm. Regardless of whatever assessment you use, we're trying to answer specific questions, and we have to know the limitations and the appropriate uses of the data to answer specific questions. Now, I, so I would argue, and I can talk about in a few minutes if you'd like what I would argue we should do instead. So I would argue some standardized measures of reading and math actually can be can be helpful if used if used the right way. Um, but we have to, but, but in order to interpret those data, we need to be thinking about standard measure. We need like I don't know how people how many people out there are familiar with fontes Panel. It's, it's a commonly used reading assessment, um, and it kind of drives me nuts. i published three articles on this now, and we look to see the purported uses of the data, and um, the, this, the research we're doing just doesn't support any of those purported uses. But the point I want to make is the kid is an M, okay? So that's the metric they use. They use a letter system. So if the kid's an M. They're supposed to be able to read M-level books. There's so many problems with that from a measurement perspective. First of all, that doesn't take into account the standard of measure. If the standard error of measure is two levels, which I would argue is probably a decent estimate, that means the kid's M, you know, could be a K, could be an O, and they never take that into account. Secondly, anyone who understands measurement understands the limitations of generalizability, and data never generalize to or from an individual. So I this kid might be an M, assuming we know what that means, and this book might be an M. But it doesn't mean the kid will be able to read that particular book because of the lack of, potentially lack of generalizability of the data. So we have to take that same kind of thinking apply it to the measures that we use more frequently in school psychology. For, for 20 years we used curriculum-based measurement, oral reading fluency, without ever stopping and asking, isn't there standard error of measure of oral reading fluency? And my colleague up in, in Minnesota, Ted Christ, was the one first one who came along and said, you know, yeah, there, there is standard error of measure. And if the kid reads 80 words a minute, that Standard of measure might be plus or minus 20 or even 30 words. So we have to we have to teach students how to always think in terms of a problem solving framework and think of the big picture of, of um, measurement and what it means and how to apply it to very applied questions. And when you do that, then we use these the we'll use these measurement uh, these uh, cognitive measures and such. I would argue probably more appropriately. But I'm with you, I, I, Rebecca. I think it's got to go back to grad school. And yes, my my courses. We teach we teach a problem-solving framework, and we teach heavy measurement, so you understand what the data mean, regardless of what the measure is. Wow, that's
1: really that's- interesting. Can I can I ask a really kind of grainy question? Um, mm-hmm. If you if you are um, you you get your um, assessment data back, and you find that a student, for example, is um, has you know a profile that such that processing speed is is significantly slower and then your other scores. And then so you, you might say to yourself, okay, so um, what I imagine might be helpful for the student in class is that um, for the teacher to ask the, the – to repeat – have the student repeat the directions. So in, that, in my mind, that is a way that a cognitive assessment would inform an intervention. But do you think that that's not appropriate or that that's sort of, um, you know, not – not something, that, not the way I should be thinking of
3: that. So there's, there's, there's good news and bad news there. Okay. Um, so the, I'll say the bad news. The bad news is that there's no research really to support do that practice, that, that, you know, a child with a slow processing speed on, on a measure responds differentially to an intervention. But the key word there is differentially. Rebecca, the the recommendation you just made, uh, something like say it more slowly or back to the student or have them say it back, that's good instructional practice. So I would argue a lot of kids who struggle with following classroom activity or classroom rules with, you know, uh, instruction, whatever, that's not a bad thing to do. So the recommendation isn't a bad one. All I'm saying is it's probably not going to be differentially effective based on a processing speed score. It's probably a good thing for our kids to do. Going back to learning styles, you know, visual kinesthetic approaches, most kids learn better through those. Those are not bad things to do. What we're saying is they do not differentially, they're not differentially more effective for some kids than others. Or at least if they are, we don't know the why at this point. Um, and we know what good instruction and good intervention looks like, and I would suggest we can assess the kid's skill to see what, how we should focus it so we, could, we should be doing that, and, and I think that's an important um, point to make.
1: Oh, I like that, yeah. And it's, it would be the same maybe for um, a child with executive functioning weaknesses, if you recommend graphic organizers and, you know, uh, ways to, you know, have uh, like mind maps or um, <laughs> checklists, all of that is good, for, could, could be good for almost any student. Yes.
3: That's right. We've been there's been research on self-regulated um, learning for 40 years, mm-hmm. and it's consistently shown that most kids who struggle with that most you know respond well to self-monitoring these things you just mentioned. Um, so we why we need to have I don't think we need to have a, a low score on some sort of executive functioning scale to to do that. I think that's just a good practice. Now I want to talk about executive function for just a second, if I could, because it's a really hot topic in school psych. It was included in the article in the communique because the only meta-analysis on it we could find was the one by um, Parkinson and Jacob, I think it is. Let me find it so I, I can tell you for sure what it is. Uh, let me find it. Hold on. Sorry. Uh, I'll, I'll talk and look um, simultaneously. I will find it. Anyway, um, and it's a really cool meta-analysis. And basically what they found was uh, that... that, that um, reading and math correlated with measures of executive function, and that most of the research done on executive functioning was done since 2010, so it's a lot of recent stuff. Um, but then they also found that, well I found it, Jacob and Parkinson, it's in press. 67 studies. Um, but they found that changing executive functioning did not result in changes to reading and math. And they concluded there was no causal link between executive functioning and reading and math. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's a couple problems with that, with the idea of executive function. Number one, the measurement. Um, there's some. There's two different approaches to measuring it. One is a performance-based approach, like these towers, the Tower of Hanoi, Tower of all those, and those types of things. And then there's this scre- the the rating scales. Those two measures correlate in a, in a meta-analysis by um, um, to- Toplak, West, and Stavv in 2013 found the correlation between those two of 0.19. Quite low. Mm -hmm. So we're not really sure, well I'll just say this, the type of measure that we use matters. Like we're gonna get different results. So maybe they're measuring different things, we don't really know. I think part of the problem is, if we asked 15 different people, we'd get 15 or at least 10 different definitions of executive functioning. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really kind of major problem here. And I keep coming back to this, So let's say you use the brief. It's commonly used, right, for executive function. Teacher comes to you and says, boy, my kid really struggles with organizing, planning, et cetera. And then I'm going to give that teacher a rating scale, the teacher who just referred the kid to me for that particular problem, a rating scale to assess how severe it is, when it was that teacher who told me the kid had a problem to begin with. Why do I need those additional data? If I know what good interventions look like in that area, or heck, just good interventions in general, Again, I'm not convinced that there'll be a reason that some kids do differentially better than others on these. Uh, and I'm not convinced a, a screen or a rating scale really tells us much information. Um, so I'm, just, I'm kind of perplexed by executive function. I don't know why it's such a hot topic in school psychology. I understand why it is from a research perspective. I understand why it's important. I Yeah, all of that makes sense. But to practitioners, we don't really have a good definition of it. We don't really know how to measure it yet. And we're not sure of the practical implications of it. I, mean, I wish school psychs would just kind of take a step back, <clears throat> think about it, be reflective, and be skeptical and, 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 and look at what they do and and um, really decide is this, is this the best way to help kids?
0: And I, I really like that, that mentality of being kind of healthily <laughs> skeptical and, and thinking about these things um, because as a profession, I feel like we. We don't want to look back, you know, ten years down the line, and say, "Oh, remember when we used to do this thing?" That's totally useless, you know. We don't want to be the people that were reading palms and thinking that, you know, we were telling fortunes type of thing. Um, I think it would reflect poorly on our field if we're practicing in a way that isn't supported by research and is just, yeah, like taking somebody's palm and reading it and telling their fortune. Are we, are we kind of doing that to some level with? Um, you know, some of the ways that we're functioning day to day. So it's, it's a good thing just to think about and, and be aware of. Yeah, great.
1: We have a couple of comments that I, um, from viewers that I'd like to share with you guys. Um, um, Eric says, good thoughts about being knowledgeable practitioners. We often read that certain tests or concepts correlate highly, but as consumers of research, we should remember that correlation is not causation. Um, he also says great thought about instructional practice, not necessarily being an aptitude by treatment interaction issue. Um, and then our friend sincerely school psychologist mentioned that when she linked your article, Dr. Burns, on her page, a Reader had a good co- uh, question that was um, uh, if it's the goal, if the goal is academic success, Sometimes I wonder if that's the best goal. Of course we want our students to be successful in writing math, etc., but what about everything else like problem-solving skills, creativity, organization, critical thinking, etc.? Wouldn't interventions targeting cognitive and executive functions help promote those deeper, quote-unquote, deeper skills?
3: So let me talk about that. That's... Now, they're, they're making that, what's that person's name, Sincerely Psychology? Or something?
1: Yes, she's our our friend with the, another Facebook page for school. Oh, awesome. <laughs>
3: I'll look for that one. Yes. Um, there's an interesting and a, and a really good point in there. And what I heard was that, um, yes, reading and math skills are important, of course, but isn't there also learning um, behaviors? Yes, there are. And we can teach those. In fact, there's some really great work on that, and on, on, um, I'm not calling it the right, right thing. It's learning behaviors, but that's not the right term for it. Really focusing with little kids. And I'm sorry I'm blanking on, the, on the, the right term, but it's basically learning behaviors. And um, yes, we can directly teach those. And uh, there's some really great work with little kids on teaching them how to um, how to, how to um, organize things. How to, yeah, yeah, we can actually teach those. And we should do that. The point I'm making is most kids who struggle would respond well or need that type of intervention. And that's not a cognitive process intervention per se. Teaching a child um, many of the things, including problem-solving skills, organization, critical thinking, those aren't problem-solving. Like Those are direct skills that we can directly teach. I'm sorry, so problem-solving. Those aren't processing. Those are direct skills that we can directly teach. Mm-hmm. And um, they still, however, human beings don't generalize. If we teach a kid how to... You know, do one thing as part of these learning behaviors. There's no reason to believe that that will generalize their broader academic functioning or their day-to-day life. So we have to teach it. We also have to teach the reading and math skills, and we also have to help them teach them how to generalize these skills. And that's why I would argue there's a difference between metacognition and cognition. Teaching a child to um, to pay attention to what they're doing to realize why they're doing it, to pick pick particular strategies. These are all fine things to do with kids who are struggling. Uh, And I would encourage people to do that in addition to reading and math skills. But these are not cognitive processing, per se, and there's no evidence to support a measure could tell you which kid would differentially respond to any of these interventions. So there's a a really good point in there. And and I do think we should be teaching learning behaviors, and that should be part of of intervention. But they won't generalize it, so we've got to teach them reading and math too.
1: So I want to try to get grainy again for a moment because I want to try to imagine what this would look like. Um, So if I have a student, um, say, with ADHD, um, and I'm thinking, recommending to the teacher those strategies of, you know, front-loading information, you know, to ask him to start thinking about what he should be listening for and graphic organizers, Mm -hmm. will that, help him more than another student who doesn't have the same profile of strengths and weaknesses?
3: I would argue we don't know. Probably not. Probably. Uh, Probably not. Probably both kids would respond well. Um, Probably not. Probably both kids respond well to that added component to their intervention or respond. We we don't know. Let me say it this way. We don't know. We don't know. One kid might do better with that than the other. And we really don't have good data to predict that. Uh, we don't know. So adding that component to an intervention is probably a fine thing to do for a lot of kids. And it might differentiate, differentially be, there might be differential effectiveness, but we have really no way of knowing beforehand which kid will respond and which won't. So they're, they're good components to add to an intervention uh, package.
1: Right. I think what happens sometimes in a classroom is that, um, you know, the teacher has her, end goals or learning goals for the entire class and if the students don't, some students don't need those extra steps, they're kind of following along just fine and they're reaching those academic goals without the extra support, then it makes sense not to do that, you know, for the whole class and then maybe just somehow um, with, with assistance, with support, like from the school psychologist or to have accommodations and interventions specifically, you know, for the, those kids. And so mm-hmm. I think it's also sort of a logistical issue <laughs> for the classroom teacher.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I argue um, – let me talk a little – I'm going to kind of transition while still talking about this um, – mm-hmm. to work on sort of the most fundamental skill. So when school sites are trying to identify what, what the area is in consultation with the teacher, what area it is we should be focusing on, we're going to try and focus on the most fundamental skill. Uh, so, for example, in, in reading, we, we think of reading as being kind of five areas. I know most people know this, but I'll say it just for uh, clarity. Being phonemic awareness, knowing that words are made of sounds, we can manipulate those sounds to make words. The alphabetic principle, decoding phonics, you know, being able to sound out words, fluency, reading with accuracy and and sufficient speed, uh, and then vocabulary and comprehension. So we think of those as five intervention areas. And phonemic awareness is the most fundamental. So if a child is struggling with with comprehension but has good fluency skills, we're probably going to do a comprehension intervention. If a child has, I'm grouping comprehension and vocabulary together, um, because they're really hard to differentiate in practice, and the interventions tend to work well together anyway, so we just do them together. So the child struggles with comprehension and vocabulary, but has good fluency, we do a comprehension intervention. If the child has low comprehension, low fluency, good decoding skills, we focus on fluency. We'll do six-minute solution, read naturally. If the child has low comprehension, low fluency, low decoding, but has good phonemic awareness, we're going to focus on decoding. Things like rewards, read mastery, um, uh, road to the code, etc. If the child's low on all four, phonemic awareness is the most fundamental skill. We're going to start the intervention there. So, school psychologists, I, I would argue, should look at their data to try and determine the most fundamental skill in which a kid is struggling and focus the intervention there. Um, oftentimes, they have the data they need to do that. And if they don't, it's, it, it can be looking at, at um, getting a little bit more data. For example, if you're in your assessment um, in your assessment package, if you haven't done a, a nonsense word measure, nonsense word fluency or um, this word attack subtest, look at Johnson, um, any pseudo word type measure, any type of word attack measure, you can include that, and that's a good indication of decoding. You can do a quick curriculum measure with, measurement with them and get a good indication of reading fluency. Chances are you're already measuring comprehension. I mean, you've got these data probably already. So kind of just lay them out and look to see in which areas is the kid struggling and start with the most fundamental area. So if the child has uh, scores low on the word attack subtest then and, and scores low on your comprehension measure and your fluency measure, then a good recommendation would be to focus on uh, decoding for that kid. And we published a couple articles on that and, and also, by the way, a meta-analysis right now that's under review. We saw an average effect size of targeted interventions that way for reading of 0.65, whereas the more comprehensive interventions, things like read 180, LLI, et cetera, had had, uh, average effect sizes of 0.26. So really trying to break it down and figure out what is the most fundamental skill in which the kid is struggling.
0: Great. Super interesting. I've got another question um, just to jump in there, or just a comment, really. that I think it's hard for, for myself too um, as you know the professional that sits on the IEP team meeting and we do a cognitive measure. Sometimes that's all I'm doing based on you know what the team has kind of ordered, what they, what they want to see. Oftentimes teams want to see a cognitive for various reasons and so I do that and then I come back to the table and I feel like I want to give these insightful Helpful recommendations for interventions, and I want to put these things in my report. And the team responds really, you know, um, really well. And I feel like they they look at me, oh, like the school psychologist, she really knows what she's talking about because she's <laughs> talking all this jargon kind of stuff. I mean, I try not to do that, of course, but a lot of people, I think, teachers and principals, um, hear us present a cognitive measure and interpret that, and really think that there's some kind of magic behind it, and that we really know what we're talking about. And it's hard to kind of back away from that and say, you know what, I gave this cognitive measure, but it's not super helpful in where to go next. <laughs> so no. it's, hard to, um, it's hard to get away from that, I think, because I think we're a lot of times the team looks
3: to us for those types of recommendations. I couldn't agree more. I completely understand that. Um. The school psychologists, what we bring to the table is we understand data. It needs to be we understand data, not we understand cognitive measures. We need to understand the whole assessment picture. So our role should be to look at the whole picture and use that to make recommendations. So maybe I didn't even give the curriculum-based measurement. I maybe mean, I didn't even give I do a lot of work in curriculum-based assessment. Maybe I didn't, so I didn't give that. Maybe I didn't give the Woodcock-Johnson word attack. That doesn't matter. What matters is you've got the data, and your job is to synthesize the data. I completely understand. One problem in all of this is um, there's seduction and intuition. It makes intuitive sense if a kid scores low on a processing, uh, 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 processing speed measure that they need this type of intervention. It makes perfect intuitive sense. But the data don't support it as an effective practice. The other one is, is, is it is sort of seductive to be this kind of keeper of knowledge of this information. What I'll say to school psychs is most teachers don't understand what I just said a second ago about looking at data to, to, to determine what effective interventions would be for this particular kid, looking at the most fundamental skill. So as a school psych interpreting all those data I would argue is unlocking that same potential that we want when we're looking at these cognitive measures and we don't even have to be apologetic about it. You know, we don't have to say, "Well, these cognitive measures don't don't answer this question." The cognitive measures are intended to measure a different question. But we can look at the whole picture and say, "Yeah, the kid needs this." And by the way, that's also why I really encourage school sites to be part of professional learning communities, grade level teams, those other meetings where teachers are meeting to look at data, because we still do that better than, than most other professions in the field. And most teachers don't know how to target interventions based on their own reading data. So, getting school sites being part of that conversation early, I think, is a good idea. But also recognizing, yeah, you know, our our role is to look at the whole the whole pie, the whole picture, and figure out what's going on, and that's what we're bringing to the table.
2: So we have like the assessments that we might give, right? The KTEA, the Y, the WJ, right? But then um, there's the people who don't necessarily give those, or in some teams, you know, there's a curriculum-based measure or something else. There's got to be an achievement data, right, on skills to go in the right direction. So do you have any suggestions on, on what kind of scale based measures, um, aside from the ones that we always use, you know, the WJ and that kind of thing, do you have any scale based yeah.
3: measures? Yes, ones? absolutely. So, um, again, you don't do the one to administer, some special ed teacher or something might administer, it, and that's totally fine. Your task is to interpret it. But the ones I use frequently, the standardized ones, um, a lot of them are fine. The, the Woodcock-Johnson but, um, their, their measures of academic measures are, are, are totally fine the word attack the, you know those are good measures uh, the gray or reading test I tend to use a lot take kind of kind of long but it's it's a fine one um, honestly any of those the KTEA, all of those they're all fine but what I encourage you to do is also look at the the less formal data so I sit down with a kid who's struggling the first thing I'm going to do is have them read to me and I'll do a, uh, well, I do a curriculum based assessment for instructional design. For time's sake, I can't explain what that is, so I'll just talk about CBM, which is what most of us use. I'll have the kid read from a grade level curriculum based measurement, and most of us know how to do that. So, even by the way, even if I'm a school psych in a, in a field, and my job is to give the IQ test, and special ed teacher gives the achievement test, it only takes three minutes so, uh, to do a CBM. So I can sit down with the kid as part of my assessment and do a th- uh, you know, three minute CBM with grade level material. Now look, that gives me the fluency measure, so I've got that, but also I'm going to convert the data to, to accuracy. Web Dibbles, those are all fine. One thing that Web drives me, drives me nuts is they report errors per minute. I argue errors per minute are meaningless data. If a kid makes 5 errors per minute while reading 50 words, that means something very different than 5 words per minute while reading 150 words. So I take the number of words read correctly and the errors. So if a kid reads 45 words per minute and five errors, that means they read 50 words whole. Okay, so add those two, errors plus correct. So 45, the number of words read correctly per minute, divided by the total, in this case 50, is 90, 90%. I then convert that, I look at that percentage and compare it to the criterion of 93 to 96%. For time's sake, I won't explain all the research behind it. If a child's struggling le- reading less than 93% wow. correctly, they're probably struggling to break the code. Probably. So, as a school psych, if I just give an IQ test, that's my job in the assessment part of it. I'm still going to do a CBM for three minutes, and I'm going to compute uh, accuracy. And I can tell if I have, someone's given a measure of comprehension, I can use accuracy of the CBM as a proxy for decoding. I have a CBM, so that's an indication of fluency. Man, all that data right there is enough for me to work on. So so practitioners out there, do three minutes, do a three-minute probe, grade-level probe. I would argue there's actually a better approach, but for time's sake, I can't get into it. And if you're a, a practitioner and you're doing IQ, take three minutes, do, do a grade-based grade CBM, compute accuracy, and then you've got enough data there to make some recommendations. Keep in mind measurement error. There's always going to be errors, right? You're never going to get it right 100% of the time. But there's definitely enough data there to make some hypotheses to say this kid probably needs decoding, for example.
2: That was awesome. That, you know we give so many tests and you know there's so many different measures we can give, and a three-minute deal sounds pretty awesome compared with you know some of the much more time-consuming giving yeah. like three different versions yeah. of the 70 or whatever. Exactly.
3: Yeah. So I've you know I I get the question about this a lot. Um, People assume, like, Jack Neglieri and I and, and Brad Hale and such are, are mortal enemies. Not at all. We're actually, we're actually, I consider both those guys to be, be friends of uh, Brad and I were debating one time. Uh, he showed me data. You know, he spent three hours. I hope he doesn't try to say this. Oh, well, it's too it now. Um, he's, you know, he spent, or not he, but anyone in general could spend three hours to do this in-depth analysis and conclude the kid needs repeated reading. And I can tell you he needs that in three minutes. So that's, that's always been sort of my take-home point, is even if we accepted that these data led to effective uh, decision-making for interventions, which I don't think do, the data, data say they don't, even if they did, I could still have equal accuracy in a three-minute assessment.
0: Wow. Well, one more question, and then we're kind of, and Rebecca, if you want to take a look at, you know, our feeds and whatnot and see if anybody else has anything. But um, just a quick one before we wrap up. So do you feel that um, school psychologists in general, are we, are we over-testing? Are we making this a lot more complicated than it needs to be?
3: Boy, that's a great question. Uh, I think we're spending a lot of time that might be used more effectively. So, again, I, I can't do a broad general statement about this. What I'll do is go back to what I said earlier, which is look to see how um, uh, Maynard Reynolds, who's one of my heroes who passed away a few years ago, was one of the authors of the first blueprint for school psychology, and, and he was at Minnesota for a long time. Uh, he said in 1976, I think it was, the, the date might be wrong, it's time for us to stop making predictions about children's lives and start making a difference in them. That, that's my model. That's what I live by. If, I'm, if I am look at my practice, and if I am making predictions or am I making a difference? And I'm going to encourage all practitioners to, to ask that question and look at their own practice. Uh, and sometimes... Sometimes um, sometimes the, the, the practices, the, the measures that you're doing and such, um, if you're if you're can convince yourself that you're making a difference in the lives of kids based on that, then I'm not gonna challenge that. But that's a decision people have to make for themselves. Wow.
1: That's a great way. I, I love that. <laughs> that's a great way. That's um,
3: forty years ago.
1: So. it all
0: cycles back around. <laughs> <laughs> But thank you so much for joining us tonight. We really uh, learned a lot, as we do, you know, anytime we do these podcasts, we really um, are just really adding, I think, to um, the repertoire of of what we're able to bring to schools and to help children, and uh, thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. Um, I also wanted to remind everyone, um, so we're planning another podcast um, on March 6th, and we're looking for we're going to be dialoguing with some practicum students. We want to see across the country um, what different graduate programs are teaching practicum students, how how they feel prepared when they're about to go out on internship, um, what they're just that whole. Um, Putting us back, some of us who have been out of grad school for a while and maybe don't have access to interns to inform us just what's going on in grad school. Um, So, right now, I just, um, we've got I think four or so lined up from a couple different states. Um, If you guys, know anybody that would be interested in adding. um, We definitely want to have kind of a variety of people from a variety of regions. So um, feel free to reach out to us um, on the podcast page, on Facebook, or through Twitter with Psych Podcast, um, because we definitely, the more the merrier, and we want to get um, some great feedback. So please help us out with that. If you know some PAC students, that that might be good. Okay. Anybody else have any closing comments before we say goodbye? (laughs)
1: Um, I just got a comment. Let me go head over here for a second from our friend Eric, but it's not refreshing. I'm sorry. Oh my gosh, I'm under pressure now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, sometimes it I'm comes my me. <laughs> oh, you know what? It was just a, an appreciate, appreciative uh, like of um, some other comments. I think that's what that was. But um, I did uh, post – oh, Eric says that he liked your co- closing comment also, Dr. Burns. Right. Um and I think that uh, I, I put, I wanted to let everyone out there know that I, we, I was trying to take little notes. I put some co- in the comment section of the School Psych podcast page under tonight's um, post. I put um, some of the assessments that Dr. Burns recommended and, and just some of the thoughts. Um, so look, look there and we can continue having this conversation um, on Facebook and Twitter. I think it's important and I think it's helpful.
2: Mm-hmm. Thanks again, Dr. Burns, and good night, guys. Good night, everyone. Thank
3: you so much. Thank you. Thanks.